Hello and welcome to the Social Work Sessions with myself, Carolyn Smith, Principal Social Worker for Adults from Somerset Council. Social Work Sessions is a podcast that makes space for conversations about social work with adults. A podcast to support your learning, reflection and exploration of contemporary issues in practice. Great to be back again with another episode of the Social Work Sessions. I'm really delighted today that I'm speaking with Chris Hamilton. I'm going to let Chris introduce himself properly in a moment or two. Um, but our conversation today is going to be all about Mental Capacity Act and dolls. And Chris, I've known Chris for quite a long time, worked with Chris for, for a long time. Chris is super experienced and has got a huge amount of knowledge um, and expertise that he's going to be able to to start to share with you today. So really delighted he's here. So Chris, great to see you. Would you like to just introduce yourself to all of our listeners? Yeah, thanks, Caroline. Thanks for that introdu introduction. Um, so yes, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm Chris Hamilton. I'm a qualified social worker, although it feels like qualifying as a social worker was quite a while ago. But uh, um, so my current role in the in the council's uh, social care services uh, as the um, service manager for uh, MCA and dolls and basically involves the the management of the the dolls team but the the general sort of uh, application of the mental capacity act across the whole organization so advising people at all kinds of levels from frontline sort of case workers uh, up to senior managers and directors and anyone who wants to know anything about it really so we're really lucky to have you talking with us today, Chris, to be able to start sharing some of that, that huge knowledge and expertise that you've got. But I'm going to take you back now to the start of your career, because I always find it interesting. And I'm sure lots of lots of our listeners will also find it interesting about, you know, how you've got to to where you have today. So what was it that brought you to social work? How did you start out in social work? And can you tell us about your journey? Yeah, sure. Um, how, how did I start with all this? Well, I didn't know I wanted to be a social worker. I don't know whether anyone doesn't know that they want to be a social worker. I think probably a, there are a few people who do, but I wasn't one of them. Um, so I was, you know, after university and bits of university not working out terribly well, I was at a bit of a loose end, early 20s. And um, I used to regularly read a magazine called new society which doesn't it doesn't exist anymore but some people who are of a certain age will remember that i, I was um, just about to say chris i remember that before you yeah. said about people being of a certain age no, so. no, 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 no. okay <laughs> uh, we must be the same age um, <laughs> um and th th they routinely used to have uh adverts for jobs and volunteering things which was to do with any kind of sort of social care kind of kind of things and i was living in the south of england and i was a bit board really and uh, the opportunity came up to go and work with an organization called the edinburgh cyrenians um and the edinburgh cyrenians is a charity not part of the national cyrenians organization but they're a charity in edinburgh that uh, run a, a homelessness hostel for uh, young men and the purpose of the hostel was to try and get them basically off the streets and onto onto a sort of a housing into a housing system basically give them a bit of stability for a while and what they wanted was some volunteers to to come and you know, just sort of live with these boats and so i did i didn't get a clue what i was letting myself in for uh, uh and it was it was an absolute eye-opener it was a bit scary at times um 
because I was living with this group of, it was about 10 or 12 blokes in this house and there were, there were other volunteers as well. Uh, and they, they came from such different backgrounds from, from me. Um, and that's not, that's a really not an understatement. I mean, there were some people who, you know, they didn't know whether their mother was their sister or they'd been, they'd been in and out of prison. They'd been in psychiatric hospital. They'd been on the streets, all sorts of horrendous, you know, abuse histories, I suppose. And they'd end up in this place and, and the work that we did with them really, really was, well, it was difficult to think of it as being work, really, because it was just, it was partly sort of being there and being being a sort of a constant factor and, and being sort of reliably there, I suppose, for people. And um, the organisation, go on, I sorry. So just, just jumping in there, Chris, um, but I guess that, that presence being a constant in, in those people's lives, yeah, yeah. which providing some stability, which yeah. perhaps they hadn't had, no, no, absolutely, right absolutely. It, it was absolutely what they hadn't had, and yeah. um, over over the course of the months that I was there, you know, there's some some of the people came and went, and some of them clearly, you know, benefited and moved on to something a bit more stable again, um, and some didn't. Um, some some you know went back onto the streets and you know, you know burnt their boats as it were, burnt their bridges, yeah, burnt boats too. And and then went around in a you know in a cycle again and again like like we know that some people some people do, um, but there were a couple of social workers who were also employed by that organisation and that's the really the first time I came into contact with social workers, and the kind of work that they were they were doing uh, in a certain sense around the sort of residential setting we were working in, um, which was about trying to make arrangements and trying to make links for people trying to trying to provide support trying to identify services for for people um, and such valuable work because some of these some of the people found it very difficult to accept help uh made it very difficult to be helped um and the, the sort of tenacity of the social workers who um you know they 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 didn't reject people who were easily rejectable as it were that persistence perseverance keeping going and that's a theme that um, Michael Preston Shoot has talked about um, in yeah. in a couple of the podcasts that we've done so far. Really important. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that didn't lead me straight onto onto social work, but it sowed a seed. Uh, and um, so, two or three years later, I was down in Somerset and looking, looking for a job. And it was it, those were the days when it was possible to get a job in residential childcare. It wasn't quite so um, constrained and restricted and, and um, as it is as, as it is appropriately now. Um, so I got a, a job working temporarily in, in a children's care, children's home. Um, and then I moved on from there to work with young adults with learning disabilities in a residential setting. Um, and they were young adults with quite significant challenging behaviour. And again, I didn't know what I'd learned myself in for there. But that was, that was quite a, I think that was another eye-opener really. Um, and I'm, I'm going to jump in, Chris. I'm on, really yeah. sorry to keep interrupting you, but um, um, I, I was doing some, I did some training very recently, the Oliver McGowan training. And yeah. um, it, one of the key learnings for me, and this is a great opportunity to share it, is about the terminology that many of us, including myself, have used for a long time around challenging behaviour. You know, and I don't know if you've done the training yet, Chris, but um, no, no, it's it's really good, really, really powerful and delivered um, by by people with lived expertise. Um, but turning around the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, challenging behaviour, yeah, yeah. behaviours of distress, 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm making it a bit of a mission. I did say actually one of the things that uh, that I took away from the, that I was going to take away from the training was to keep reframing because well, it, I I do think that is that is so important. Uh, and I have yeah. used that exact term for for many many years. So I'm really sorry to interrupt you, Chris. No, but no, 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 really no, no. The opportunity to to promote that no, that no. that change in language. No, 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 absolutely, and it's it's that um so that's the point accepted, but, but that that's. Yeah, it's not a criticism, it, 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 Chris. It, no, 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 it, but it, 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 it's, it's understanding behavior as a, a communication, isn't it? And, and, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, one of a range of communications. And, and sometimes it's a, it's a communication which for people whose verbal communication is not so great. Um, so, so, so I did, did that for a while and that was working for Somerset County Council as it was then. And then, um, the opportunity came up, which it used to in those days for, a certain number of people to be seconded to train as social workers um and so uh, I, I i applied for, for that and i wrote a piece about some work that i'd done with one of the young people and uh, i was fortunate enough to be seconded by the council to go and train so i guess very different to or, or maybe it's not but different to the apprenticeship program that we that we offer today within yeah. the council yeah yeah it, it, it was different in the sense that that that's you know, I went on to the two-year diploma in social work training uh, right. with Plymouth University, and it was run. Uh, it was run more locally, but run by Plymouth University. And um, no, that was just, that was full-time study. So, so I, I wasn't working right. at all during that two-year period, which is which is very nice. But I was being working, <laughs> being paid. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. It's it's really interesting, isn't it? How programs have evolved yeah, the yeah, time yeah. and the apprenticeship route. Um, for anyone who is listening that is considering a career in social work, there's Absolutely. many local authorities, not just Somerset, that are running really good apprenticeship programs, yeah, which offer a good way in where you can um, still be uh, still be earning at the same time as, as as doing your qualifications. Sorry, Chris, keep interrupting. So no, no, that's, that's right. No, well, so so a quick um, skim through to the rest of the career, really. Um, so. Um, because I was seconded from the learning disability service, I then uh, qualified as a social worker and went into a learning disability social work post. So I did that for uh, a, a number of years, working working with families and young people, particularly around the Bridgewater area. Um, and uh, you know, eventually the opportunity came up to manage that social work team when the manager moved on, and it was it was sort of quite exciting really because we were moving into multidisciplinary teams at that point. So. Um, but, uh, so my first job as a as a team manager was managing a multidisciplinary team. So we had psychologists and speech therapists and and learning disability nurse and even a physiotherapist in the team. So so that was quite interesting interesting challenges as well as obviously close yes. social work staff. But uh, so uh, so yeah so 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 did that for a while and then um, and then the the uh, with the advent of the Mental Capacity Act and. You know the imminent arrival of the Dole scheme uh, about 2008, 2009. I uh, then applied for a job working in that area. So it was originally as a safeguarding and mental capacity coordinator. I think that was what the job was called. Um, but but you know fairly soon after that, safeguarding and mental capacity got separated out when with the creation of a dedicated safeguarding team. So and that was taken on by someone else um, and. Uh, I've sort of uh, done mental capacity and dolls ever since, although it's, it's changed a bit. But, 
I, I guess that leads us really nicely, Chris, into talking talking more about the the technicality um, or technicalities of Mental Capacity Act and and dolls, but also the purpose. So, what 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 do you think is the purpose of the Mental Capacity Act and dolls? Okay, so they're they're, they're they're safeguards for people's autonomy. That's that's what they are. And I think it's really important that we start off thinking about that, not 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 just thinking about them as being, and there's a tendency to do this in social care, to think about things as being bureaucratic processes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we sometimes, we get very tied up in the getting the bureaucratic process right, and we forget about what the reason is we're doing this thing for. Um, and so, you know, I, as I often say to people within the council and when I'm doing training sessions, you know, we talk about what's the what's the act for? The act is about giving people giving people as much control and influence as they can have over decisions that affect them. Yeah, and there are a number of ways of there are a number of way number of ways of of, of doing that. Um, but basically, the principles of the act, the principles of you know that follow in terms of deprivation of liberty, are those things that we would want for ourselves. And, one of the ways I get to get people to think to, to think about it, because some people say, oh, this is a very cumbersome process. It's always difficult to understand and all the rest of it. I said, well, you put yourself in someone else's shoes. Yeah, yeah. If if you, you were in a position in a few years' time or, or even maybe sooner you know, where s some other person, maybe a professional or maybe a member of your family, um, reaches a conclusion that you're not able to make a major decision for yourself and they make a decision on your behalf, and they decide that you ought to live somewhere which is not your own home or you ought to be looked after in a particular way you know would you want there to be a set of safeguards which says how they have to do that and most people would say well yes i think so that's probably a reasonable idea and would you want some some mechanism why whereby you could disagree with it if you really felt strongly about that and yes most people would I and mean, that's what dolls yes. is about i think you've put it in in a way that makes it really easy to understand chris and and you're absolutely right that that so often people do talk about the the sort of bureaucratic process and you know and often hear people asking sort of the technical questions about how to and you know what, what do i need to consider but actually taking it back mental capacity act and dolls right to what what is it all about what is the purpose of it links it in for me with social work values and the purpose of social work. Well, absolutely. We, we, I know we were talking a little bit earlier, weren't we, about um, the, the the role of the legislation as, as, as empowering people. And um, sometimes this word empower gets used a little bit uh, glibly, I suppose. Um, we have to understand that empowering usually means giving away a bit of power. Uh, so so uh, recognising you, recognising that we do have and we do have authority because of the roles that we're in because we're employed by public bodies and um, we may not find that think ourselves think of ourselves as being being powerful but often maybe the people that we engage with do and that may sometimes influence how they behave towards us and we have to we have to sort of recognize recognize that and do that but there are actually all sorts of ways in which we can uh, in a sense you know allow some of the power to to shift a little bit and I think one of one of those one of those ways is about having a really good understanding of the legislation, but actually being able to explain it in ways which are non-technical. Yeah, so we we have to find the kind of vocabulary that people understand. And I just remember um, 
a really clear story in my in my mind it was that I was chairing a meeting for a family and it was a best interest meeting we were trying to make a decision about um, a, a woman an adult woman with a learning disability who was struggling to accept care and struggling to care for herself and and um, I, I started to introduce them and her parents were in, were in the meeting she wasn't able to attend though she had an advocate and I started to introduce the meeting by talking about the Mental Capacity Act and her father interrupted me and he said my daughter isn't mental yeah and and that's yeah and we sort of take it for granted don't we that yeah this is a, this mental capacity this is a thing people know what it is well people don't know what it is no. do they? most most people in the public don't spend their time thinking about the mental capacity act do they but they do spend a lot of time thinking about how to make good decisions yes yeah absolutely but may not even use that type of language no 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 no, no. And, and 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 so when we talk about you know mental capacity we have to make sure that people understand what it is we're talking. We're talking about this person's ability to make a decision for themselves. That's what we're talking about. So why don't we say that? I think that is a really, really good question, Chris. And, uh, you know, it has much broader applicability than than just the conversation around the Mental Capacity Act and, and, and dolls. Um, so often that there's terminology that is used, taken for granted in well, social well, care, but it is quite meaningless. It, well, it's, it's it, yeah, and 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 some of it because of the way the legislation is written is just unhelpful. So, right. so, the, so yeah. the, the whole term deprivation of liberty, you know, it's very difficult to make that sound like a positive thing, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, because it, it could be, because it is framed in a, in, a, in a negative kind of way, and the public conception of that is going to be as, as as a negative thing. But if we try and explain what the safeguards are, which is about making sure that. You know, if someone does need to be cared for in a restricted way because they lack capacity to make decisions about their about their care, that's done in an appropriate fashion, and it's the it's the independent check and balance on that, which is what the dolls process is about. Let's forget the t not not forget the title, but we, you know, then let's 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 make sure people understand what the title is what is about. I'm guessing, Chris, you've had lots of experience of being able to interpret. The Mental yeah. Capacity Act for yeah. for people who who don't live and breathe it every day, you know, who um, you know, who who may need some some real support in terms of understanding what it's all about, how it applies to to them, and and also their relatives um, or, or people that are around them. I'm just just wondering if you've got any any more examples of how you could explain um, to to people. What the Mental Capacity Act is is all about. When we think about making a decision for another person, and we yeah, if we're thinking of their, we're making a decision for them because they lack the capacity to make it for themselves, and it's a, a significant decision. Um, what we have to remember is that we are not making the decision as if we were that person. It's, it's a different process. So making a decision. Uh, in someone's best interest. Again, this is this is probably where we get some good examples, isn't it, of trying to help families understand what the difference is between doing what I think is right for you and working out what is in your best interest, according according to the Act. Because if we're making a best interest decision for someone, and I say making making or leading a decision process, um, what we have to do is we have to bring into the thinking process a number of factors which in fact the person might not think think about. So so we have to have a good understanding of well what the decision is we're trying to make, why we're trying to make it, 
we have to have a good understanding of what care and support the person needs and what options are available for that. That's really a, what a... And that's crucial, isn't it? The options that are available. Absolutely. Options that are available as opposed to ones that aren't available. And, and sometimes we're making decisions, you know, in the short term because we don't know what's available in the long term. And that's, uh, and that's, that's, quite, that's quite important. Um, but, but when we're thinking about making a best interest decision for someone... One of the things we have to think about is, well, what kinds of things that this person would take into account in this kind of, in this kind of, kind of situation? So the, the example that I, I just thought about, which is sort of a relatively recent example, um, when we had the uh, coronavirus pandemic, um, and th there were a number of cases that went through the Court of Protection thinking about this business of whether people should be vaccinated or not, who lacked, who, who, who lacked capacity. And one of the interesting things that the court did, and this is sort of a bit of an illustration of how you might work when you're thinking about making a decision for someone, is, is well, let's look at this person's history. You know, um, what's this person's general attitude to uh, vaccination? You know, have they had vaccinations in the past? Uh, you know, so what indicators have we got from the past about their general approach to this thing? And what's their general approach to accepting or not accepting medical advice? You know, because that again gives us an indicator as to how they might proceed. Um, because some, sometimes we can end up being a little bit too simplistic about what we, what we sort of, you know, we give we give weight to the words that people use. That's absolutely important. But we have to understand more important than just understanding the words is understanding what the words mean for the person. And it sounds as well, Chris, that you're talking about the behaviours, what people have actually done, because so often we can say things, can't we? I might say that... Um, I don't know. I I'm, I'm going to run five miles every night. You know, I may or I may not. I, actually, the behaviours give additional weight. No, 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 no. Absolutely. So, so, so you may have someone who is verbalising that they don't want a vaccination, but but in fact, throughout their life, when they were fully capacitated, uh, they were perfectly happy to have vaccinations of various sorts, as as recommended by medical practitioners. So, so. You know, um, that, that's why it's important because because the act talks very much about understanding people's uh, present and past wishes as far as they can be known. So 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 in these particular cases, you know, the courts did look into well, what is this person's history of decision making in relation to this type of subject? Uh, we don't always have that, do we? We don't always have that history because because sometimes you know, say if someone hasn't got much in the way of family or other people we can consult. Then we're 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 very reliant on what the person themselves can tell us, and that might not be very much. Um, and 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 so we have to be we have to be quite creative about how we understand that. But as you say, you pointing out the the issue about well, to what extent does what the person say tie in with how they behave? You know, so this person, whenever they're asked, they say, "Well, I'm desperately unhappy about being in a care home. I hate it here. I want to go somewhere else and all the rest of it." But actually. 99% of the time when no one's having that conversation with them, they're perfectly happy and they're perfectly engaged and they're perfectly prepared to accept the care that's on offer. So you have to sort of look at the, look at the whole picture. It's looking beyond what people are articulating, isn't it? No, 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 absolutely. And, and I think we, um, we get used to sort of functioning in formal settings where words are very important and, and we have meetings that we in interviews and, we write reports and all, all all those kind of things, but I think we have to be slightly cautious about the value uh, about the relevance of of the words, um, because especially if we're working with people who've got 
you know, some kind of mental impairment which affects their ability to communicate. Yeah. So the words they may be using may be closely related to some kind of reality for them, but but actually we have to sort of understand what they mean. So, you know, the common example that you know, you know about Carolyn from doing doll's work is when people say, well, I want to go home. Okay, well, okay, well, most people, when when they're asked, would want to be in their own home and would be distressed at being somewhere that they don't think is their own home, and that's that's part of that conversation situation comes up. But 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 we sort of have to under, try and understand well, what does this person mean by home? Because you know, in many cases, what the person is thinking about, they've got some, they've got a clear memory in their mind of what they mean by home, and often it means going back to how I used to be. That's that's sort of what they're articulating. But often they're thinking about homes they had when they were a much younger person or when they were a child. You know, going, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, one woman saying to me, oh, well, I, I, I've got to get home because I've got to collect the children from school. Yes. And, 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 and I said, well, how old are your children? And, and she said, well, no, no, they're, they're, they're school age. They're at primary school. And, uh, you know, these, these children were in their 60s by this stage. So, um, you know, it's, it's that, or, you know, understanding the orientation. And that's not dismissing the wish at all because the person's got a, person's got a sense that they're, they're in a place which is not the right place to be and they want to get to the right place. But for some people, it may be not possible to achieve the right place. Then such a thing might not exist. I wonder as well whether um, a sense of home might be a feeling. You know, from oh, absolutely. The, that real sense of, you know, at, at, at home, I feel, you know, I feel safe. I feel, no, 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 absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Got... And, and, and I think, I think that's why it's really important that, you know, sometimes when, when someone ends up in a situation where in fact, going back to the home that they used to be in, you know, is, is not practical for various reasons in terms of what care can be provided or whether the heat of the home is even available, but actually making the place that they're in as much like home as you can, you know, so personal possessions and familiar people and, and, and those kind of things. And, and that can be quite difficult to achieve in any kind of institutional setting. But, 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 you know, it's, it's what, it's what very, it's what good care homes do. <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot, a lot of people are happy in care homes, you know, just, you know, despite what we hear. And we, t we tend to deal in dolls with a disproportionate number of people who are not happy about being places, but actually there are plenty of people who are content with where they are. I'm going to jump back um, yeah. a few minutes in the conversation. Okay. Um, you were talking about the decision, having to be really clear uh, about what the decision is that needs mm. to be needs well, to made. And um, lots of our listeners will probably be familiar with what I'm, what I'm just going to pose, is that we often hear... Um, people talking about um, somebody has capacity or they don't as a really sort of general statement no, 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 I'm just wondering if you could if you could um, reflect on that Chris yeah well I, 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 I think um, there's a sort of a common sense understanding isn't there that people people have either got capacity or they haven't um, and and in a way the you know the mental capacity act sort of requires us to sort of challenge that as an idea but 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 when you start to unpick the sort of logic of decision making in terms of needing to understand certain information and weigh things up and, and communicate them it's quite obvious that not all decisions are the same and 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 and, and you know therefore that some decisions are much simpler than others and therefore that some people might be able to make some simpler decisions but not some more complicated ones depending on in terms of where they are in their journey and what their level of cognitive impairment but but you know 
So, so we do have to keep reminding people that, you know, that, 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 that actually the statement that, you know, someone lacks capacity on its own is, is not a meaningful statement, but lacks capacity to do what, you know, and, and, and to do what at the time that a decision is made, you know, so a theoretical decision about entering a care home when that's not even proposed, doesn't really matter whether the person's got capacity at that point at all, really, but, uh, um, we have, we have to sort of ask questions when they're needed. That's really helpful, Chris. I'm very aware that we've been talking probably for about half an hour already. Time absolutely flies when we're talking. And I know there is so much more um, knowledge um, and expertise that, you, that you'll be able to share, Chris. So I'm, I'm hoping that you'll agree to uh, to come back on a future episode to, uh, to talk a little bit more. And, you know, maybe we can we can really focus down on, on specific uh, aspects around mental capacity and dolls. But okay. I'd just like to uh, to ask you, now if you were to be able to give a bit of advice to your younger self as the social worker, you were just starting out, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I, I think that this is a sort of, yeah, this is a, a, a reflection that's, that's developed over years, I suppose, it, it is, is that um, as social workers, we get into situations where or we're involved in situations where people are challenged and challenging sometimes and uh, upset and distressed and um people are at times of crisis aren't they sometimes and uh, and um despite the difficulties and despite the fact that um sometimes some people are quite difficult to engage with difficult difficult to relate with relate to um i think we have to remember that you know the, the kind of access we have into people's private lives it is a is a privilege to be uh, respected um, and you know you, obviously there are some situations where we're in people's lives and they'd rather we weren't <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, 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 but in lots of situations you know people are prepared to share with us as social workers um, you know aspects of their private lives that they may not share they may not share with other people as a way of trying to help move the situation on and, and I think you know, that the kind of privileged access to people's private lives, I think, is is something that we should, you know, value very, very highly and, and yeah. you know, and, and, and use in the most sort of sensitive and creative kind of way. It is a real privilege. I, I totally agree with you, Chris. And I guess so many of the, the stories and narratives about the work that social workers do day in, day out, working in in that really privileged position with with people we don't hear much about those those positive stories where where real change has happened very much often in the media we we hear about things that have gone horribly wrong we do but the majority of of social work from certainly in my experience is about change that that does that can and does happen yeah 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 we we, we you know, i mean Particularly, um, my experience has always been working with adults, other than my early experience with in, in ch- children's residential care. But I, yeah, I don't envy the position of people working in child protection, so- social work. Um, you know, that's a, a, obviously a very fraught area and potentially challenging, very challenging area. But we have to remember that you know that the, the, the thousands and thousands of children who are protected by good quality social work in that area um and you know the, the unfortunately the relative few where things don't go right um but that it is it is it is the minority um but but but, but i think yes 
you know, um, it, it's a challenging time for working in public services, isn't it? And and, and um, partly because the services are so stretched. And I think that's one of the that's one of the difficulties for, for being the public face of a, a public organisation is 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 that in a sense you you then cop some of the criticism for the failings of the system in general and uh, you know um, social workers have to be well supported in their in their roles of being the public face i suppose i think that is a really important point chris about that need to be well supported i'm i'm guessing you're talking about by by the organisation that they work for yeah, by the organisation yeah 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 by by, the, yeah. by 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 managers and 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 by teams and and you know, uh, I've I've been you know, privileged to you know work with some fantastic people, and you know be part of some absolutely great, great great teams. Um, but I know sometimes that you know it's not always it isn't always like that. Um, but I wouldn't you know it's important not to underestimate the value of good managers. Yeah, um, good managers whose role primarily is to is to enable their staff to work effectively isn't it it's to enable them to do all that difficult stuff you know you have there uh, in the field as it were we, we used to call it don't we we did uh, we did field, yeah yeah field, field work um uh yeah but but people people can't keep doing that if they don't get good quality support i i totally agree and uh, michael preston shoot actually in i think it was the first um podcast that we did i think it was episode one um, was talking about self-care as well and support for for social workers, how important that whole context is to enable social workers to have a, a long career. Yeah. I, I, I think especially it's something we, we have to make even more of an effort on now because because of the sort of this whole business of hybrid working and, and oh, yes. people not physically being in a team with other people for for a proportion of the time. I know some teams do function differently and I know that's not universally universally the case, but but certainly I've I've been very fortunate with the dolls team that I manage because we 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 we'd all worked together for a number of years before we went into hybrid working working from home. So we we all sort of knew each other really well and, and so so that transition wasn't too difficult as long as the technology worked. It was fine. Um but for for new people coming in it's much more difficult to sort of build those relationships because you're not you're not sitting next to someone you can just say, "Excuse me, what do we do with this?" or whatever. It, it's yeah, it has to be a phone call or a Zoom call or or, or, or whatever it is. And it's there's a there's a sort of a barrier to it. Um, and, and and I think yeah, as managers and as team members, I think we have just have to be we have to be very proactive in terms of how we make sure that people are made to feel part of something. Thank you, Chris. I think that is a really important point to to end on thinking Good. about how we enable people to to really feel part of a team a service an organization thank you chris it's been fantastic to talk to you and uh, i really hope that you'll come back and and talk some more share, share more of your expertise so thank you and i'd also like to say thank you to sean taylor so uh sean, sean's never actually spoken on the podcast but he makes it all possible he's there sorting out all the technical things for us which i absolutely couldn't do um, and, uh, and and does the editing as well. So a huge thanks to uh, to Sean. I really hope that you're enjoying the podcasts and that they're useful in terms of CPD, critical reflection. And I'd I'd really love to hear from you. So if you have got any feedback, you know, do do comment um, or you can send an email 
to us. The uh, the email address is in the show notes. Um, we have started getting uh, emails now, so uh, so do get in touch with us. And also let us know if there are any particular topics that you would like us to cover. We've got uh, quite a number that are already recorded and will be going out over the next uh, next few weeks. Uh, and we're starting to think ahead now for, for topics for later in the year. Last thing for me to say, it is that point of the um, of the episode to say, if you do like the podcast, please do rate the podcast. Give us five stars if you think uh, that we're worthy of five stars because that does help us to become more visible uh, to uh, to other people and gives people the opportunity to to be able to listen to to some of the um, really knowledgeable speakers that, uh, that that I'm really privileged to to be talking to. Thank you ever so much and uh, look forward to speaking with you on the next episode.